When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com. What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. I know you could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me, and I appreciate that. This week, we are talking about snacks, theme parks, and China's economic slowdown. We're expecting to get key reports this week on all three, and we'll talk about what Disney's upcoming earnings and China's inflation can tell us about what's happening with trade, spending, and the global economy's health. But first... Kelanova. You may not have ever heard of Kelanova, but you definitely know their products. Cheez-Its, Rice Krispie Treats, Pop-Tarts. Kelanova was previously Kellogg. The brand split itself into two companies in early October. Kelanova, which is now home to Kellogg's snack brands like the ones I just mentioned, and WK Kellogg, which produces cereals like Special K and Frosted Flakes. Both companies are expected to deliver quarterly reports to investors on Wednesday. Those reports will come at a crucial moment for the sector. Americans are eating healthier and they are snacking less. That's in part thanks to anti-obesity drugs like Ozempic and Munjaro that are reducing users' appetites and specifically reducing their propensity to snack. The drugs are growing rapidly in popularity. Snacks have been big business, and W.K. Kellogg and Kelanova stand to lose big if Americans kick their snacking habit as do other consumer staples companies like Kraft Heinz and Hershey. The stock prices for those companies have fallen between 10 and 25 percent this year. But we're not seeing a doomsday sell-off by investors, though W.K. Kellogg's stock has fallen since the split. Kelanova and W.K. Kellogg both declined to comment. But what comes next? And could earnings reports from W.K. Kellogg and Kelanova this week serve as something of a canary in that coal mine? Joining me to talk about all of that is Pamela Kaufman, who covers the packaged food space as an equity analyst for Morgan Stanley. First thing I want to ask you is about your take on the decision to split Kellogg into two companies. What do you make of that? Well, Kellogg decided to split up into two companies because the parent company felt like they were misperceived as Mm -hmm. a cereal company. Part of that was the name Kellogg, the legacy of the company. Um, But really, the cereal business was just a high teens percentage of the company's overall sales. And their rationale was that they want to be a more focused international snacking company. Right. The idea was that uh, Kellogg would get a premium valuation Mm -hmm. for separating the slower-growing cereal business, which has been a drag on its performance. Um, Snacking companies like Hershey and Mondelez have historically traded at premium multiples. Mm -hmm. Meaning the stock price goes higher even though they maybe don't sell more stuff. Exactly, because they have better growth outlooks Mm -hmm. than the center-of-store packaged food companies as an analyst and being very close to the business. I think that there are also a lot of challenges created by the separation. It wasn't completely clear what the benefits were of splitting up the companies because there's 
already an understanding that the current Kelanova business had that exposure to snacking, had high exposure outside of the U.S. I think from the W.K. Kellogg perspective, there was probably more of a reason to separate the business because that business had not been given as much attention as the Kelanova business Mm -hmm. internally. So I think that from a consumer standpoint, you could see more change in the cereal business over time versus the snacking company. So the snacking company, right? I I think that's a particularly interesting area to talk about. We had Michael Farr, a professional investor recently on the show, tell us that he's worried about the impact of some of these Mm anti-obesity drugs, Ozempic, Wigovi, um, on this packaged food space, on snacking, not just on the snacking companies, but on American snacking habits in general. Uh, Some of these companies like Kelanova, like Mondelez, like Hershey, uh, companies you cover, right? As someone who watches the space, do you think this is something investors should be worried about? We've done a lot of work to estimate the impact of obesity drugs on the food industry. And I think that when you look at the impact of obesity drugs over time for the industry, it should be relatively manageable. Hmm. We did a survey of 300 people taking anti-obesity drugs, and people cut back on their daily meals by 20%, but cut back on daily snacks by 40%. And what was interesting is that people cut down on their consumption across pretty much every category. Mm -hmm. But we saw a higher percentage of people say that they cut back on less healthy categories like snacks, so candy, cookies, salty snacks, and sodas. And then within those, there was also a much larger degree of cutback among those who cut back on snacking. So about a 60 to 70% reduction in how much they were eating of those categories. Wow. That's significant. It's striking. And I think what's happening is there's a mix shift in people's diets where they're cutting back on high-fat, high-sugar foods and eating healthier foods. Mm -hmm. And so historically, the snacking companies have been the darlings of the packaged food industry. There have been secular tailwinds supporting faster growth in snacking. Mm -hmm. People are on the go more, are eating fewer big meals, and are – you know, snacking has been growing much faster than center of store categories. And I think what the GLP-1 dynamic is introducing is... And the GLP-1 dynamic is those anti-obesity drugs, Correct. Right? Yes. Um, I think that it is reframing the way that people are thinking about the winners and losers in the food industry. So you, you talked about W.K. Kellogg and a long-term decline for cereal. What's your expectation for the long-term decline in cereal? Because I will tell you, I eat cereal every morning. I love it. Okay. I mean, cereal is a category that has been in secular decline. It's declined at about a 1% rate over the last 10 years. It's been impacted by more on-the-go consumption. People are not sitting down to have a bowl of cereal in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I I think that the category will continue to decline at a low single-digit rate over the foreseeable future. And W.K. Kellogg is targeting stable sales over the next couple of years, which would imply that they have to gain market share in order to get there. Mm -hmm. To gain market share, they have to reinvest back in the business. So more advertising, more innovation to drive um, growth relative to the category. So does that mean the prices are likely to be higher or lower? Asking for me. (laughs) 
I think that the prices would have to be higher in order to offset the volume declines and get to stable sales. All right. That's not what I wanted to hear at all. (laughs) I I think that it's hard for food companies to have visibility around an improvement and confidence in the growth outlook over the next year. I think that expectations need to move lower across the street. Mm. And at that point, then companies will be in a better position to over-deliver. But if you look at the outlook for next year and look at consensus numbers, it's still pretty optimistic considering what we've seen in the consumer environment. That was Morgan Stanley equity research analyst Pamela Kaufman. Coming up, Disney is expected to report earnings on Wednesday. We'll talk about what's next for the company and why fun has now become unaffordable. When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com. Disney is at the heart of a bunch of stories about what's happening to the global economy. There is the inflation story. Inflation? Its streaming services like Hulu and Disney Plus are raising the price of subscriptions. And more changes could be coming as the company just agreed to pay more than $8.6 billion to buy out Comcast's share of Hulu. Then there is the consumer spending story. Some of Disney's theme parks have been raising the price of admission, while others have been raising the price of parking and annual passes. Consumers are complaining, but they're still showing up. And there's the labor story. Its movie studios have been grappling with strikes like the recently resolved writer strike and the ongoing actor strike. That said, it's been a rough year for the company's stock. In fact, it's been a rough couple of years. Since hitting a record high in March of 2021, Disney shares have lost more than 50% of their value, wiping out more than $200 billion from the company's market valuation. That big decline has brought demands for some big changes at Disney, notably from activist investor Nelson Peltz, who is said to be looking for multiple seats on the company's board. All of that is putting increased pressure on CEO Bob Iger. We reached out to Disney about this, but representatives did not respond to our request for comment. My colleague Robbie Whelan covers Disney for the Journal, and he's been following all of this very closely. He joins me now. Robbie, you wrote a story recently with the headline, It's Getting Too Expensive to Have Fun. And this is actually something I've been saying for months, that fun is too expensive. Tell me about this story and how it relates to Disney specifically. We looked at the data and we found that the price indexes for all kinds of kind of, you know, leisure activities, live entertainment have really gone up in the last year a lot faster than in previous years. And so the connection with Disney here for me is that Disney has really been on a terror raising prices of its tickets um, at the theme parks. What they're trying to do is encourage people to buy more multi-day passes Mm -hmm. and um, encourage people to spend more in the park. And so one part of that is that they discourage people from buying a one-day pass by making it prohibitively expensive. So mm. right now on a peak day in, um, in Orlando at, at Walt Disney World, a single park ticket, um, if you want to go to Magic Kingdom, for example, on a peak day during a vacation time, it's, it's around $192, which is the highest it's ever been by a long shot. 
but it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not just like every ticket is going up. If you, if you buy a three-day pass, for example, you're going to get a much better deal. Yeah, and in your story, you also talk about the negative response this price strategy has gotten from some Disney fans who were already struggling to pay for things like flights, hotels, gas. Is this strategy at least paying off on the bottom line for Disney? Oh, it definitely is. Disney's theme park business has really become a lot more strategically important to the company overall Mm -hmm. because they figured out how to make it extremely profitable. Over the last two years, we've seen quarter after quarter where they're setting records on revenue and on operating income. And, And the reason why it's so important, I should say, is that Disney's TV business, which traditionally has been one of its biggest cash cows, it seems to be kind of falling off a cliff. <laughs> it, you know, as more and more people every year cut the cable cord and cancel their cable subscriptions, that that is a lot of money flowing out of the pockets uh, of Disney. So when you've got this kind of TV business that's in secular decline, they really have to patch the hole somewhere. And, and they've been doing that with the theme park business by, by raising prices. Disney's stock is down pretty significantly this year. What are shareholders looking to hear in this upcoming earnings report that could give some signs that things are turning around or that Disney is doing some things to get that stock price moving back up? And on the other side, what could we hear that tells us that maybe things are worse than expected? I would say the first thing that investors are going to be looking at are the line on the direct-to-consumer business, which is the streaming business. And they're going to say, how much money did that business lose this quarter? Number two, they want to see either kind of sustained levels of subscribers or growth in the subscriber base. Last quarter, Disney, you know, showed major progress in cutting losses in streaming, Mm -hmm. but they also lost some subscribers um, in some key markets. And so the good news was kind of offset by the bad news. What shareholders tell me is that they really want to see not just a few little initiatives that might, on the margins here and there, make the company look better, like it's on the right track. They want to see a real plan to get this company on the right track. Mm-hmm. That's going to involve naming a successor at some point in the next oh. six to twelve months. It's going to involve, um, you know, something definitive about what's going to happen to the TV business. Are they going to sell it? Are they not going to sell it? Mm-hmm. Are they going to get a strategic partner for ESPN? Or are they not? There's just all these open questions. And if Disney were to put out some sort of kind of, (laughs) I don't know, a a strategy paper of some sort or something that outlines what the goals are and how how long the market should expect them to take to achieve them, that is what I think in an ideal world most investors would like to see. Because right now, nobody really knows what's going on. That was Robbie Whelan. He covers Disney and the business of Hollywood for The Journal out of Los Angeles. When we come back, I'll explain why inflation data from China this week is likely to matter to the whole world. Apollo is working to ensure a bright, bold future, financing solutions to some of the most complex challenges the world is facing. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com. One more thing before we get out of here. If you've been watching the news or the markets, you've probably heard a lot about China lately. China's economy is slowing down, and that's been meaningful for lots of countries besides China. 
As the world's biggest trading partner, the country's reduced buying has been a leading cause of some bad news around the globe. Japan reporting its first drop in exports in more than two years. Central bankers from South Korea and Thailand downgrading their growth forecasts. And the European Commission predicting that Germany, Europe's largest economy, will fall into recession this year. U.S. companies also do a lot of business in China, especially the big tech companies that have been driving the stock market this year. China matters. And this week, we'll get a big reading on its inflation data as the country reports its consumer and producer price index data, showing how prices are rising or falling for individuals and for businesses. China's consumer prices were flat in September, but producer prices fell by 2.5%. And that was an improvement, the smallest decline since March. Here's my colleague Ling Ling Wei, who covers China for the Journal, to explain what's happening. China right now is under tremendous deflationary pressure, uh, meaning falling prices. And the fundamental reason for that is demand is really weak uh, from both businesses and consumers alike. The property market is really in trouble. That has had quite a knock-on effect on a lot of other sectors and also has made Chinese households uh, feel poorer than before, than when the uh, housing prices were rising. Another important reason is the confidence the public has in the economy really is at the lowest it has been ever since the reform and the opening policy was launched in the late 70s. The reason for that is that a lot of people are not sure about the direction the country is going in. But Lingling also points out that the story is starting to improve as the government has taken some marginal steps to boost the economy, cutting interest rates a bit and loosening restrictions on parts of the real estate sector. Manufacturing activity has picked up and retail sales are rising. Overall, though, the country looks to be at an impasse. The big picture for China is that President Xi Jinping has moved the country away from the grow-at-all-cost model that helped its economy become the second largest in the world. Lingling calls the recovery we've seen in China a fragile one. So this week's data will be meaningful because they will tell us whether the fragile recovery continues or if things are starting to reverse course. That's a question that economists and market watchers will be paying close attention to. So will CEOs and leaders from around the world. You should too. And that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, November 5th. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabowin. Stay smart. When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.